And as I said a moment ago on the pre-introduction to the program, a two-part program tonight. We talk about two very interesting men who've achieved, who did achieve a great deal. One of them is still achieving, namely Warren Buffett. That's uh, our subject. He is our subject for the first hour. Second hour, we talk about Benjamin Disraeli, a great prime minister of uh, England, indeed of the United Kingdom, uh, in the last, in the uh, 19th century. I almost said the last century, but I gather we're now in the 21st century. Uh, my guest during the first hour, Alice Schroeder, who's the author of a book now on the very top position on the New York Times bestseller list. The book is titled The Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. Instantly, of course, the necessary, if obvious, question is, why the snowball? The snowball is a reference to a saying of Warren's about compounding or the snowball effect. And he says that life is like a snowball, and the important thing is wet snow and a really long hill. He's talking about getting started early and focus and how you can drive your own destiny. For the miracle of compound interest, so to speak, and wise investments. Yes, yes. But the snowball is rolling downhill towards death. That's true, something that's always been a challenge for him to contemplate. He's very preoccupied, apparently, I learned from your book, with mortality. He is. Uh, he wanted to be an actuary at one point when he was young. He started calculating lifespans of hymn composers, and it enters into most of the conversations that you have with him. He brings the subject up a lot. What sort of man is Warren Buffett? Quite apart from his genius, which we'll approach in a moment, but uh, is he profoundly secure and energetic and strong-willed uh, and focus always on his proper objective and therefore fully at home in his own nature? Partly, yes. The part of him that is the investor is that man, totally confident. He says, you know, when I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and at that point, everybody's had their say. And he has this unshakable confidence. But when it comes to his own skin and people and how people feel about him, it's very different, and he's not secure. Well, the easier thing to explain is how he made his fortune. By the way, is he, in fact, now the world's richest man, as Forbes magazine so designates him? I thought it was Bill Gates. Well, they've swapped back and forth, but he is currently, yes, the world's richest man. With $60 billion to his cre uh, to his credit, is that it? Hard to contemplate, but yes. Well, they're throwing a, how many billion is it, uh, $700 billion to begin with, so uh, clean up the situation on Wall Street. That's true, but that's the government. <laughs> he's yeah. kind of a government in and of himself. But he's got more than some governments have. Yes, he sure does. More than the gross national product of some countries. He sure does. All our countries. Yeah. How did he do it? What's the real secret to the to the Buffett's billions? He would say focus, but the way he defines that term is not the way that you and I would define mm -hmm. it. It is just an unrelenting, unremitting, from the moment he opens his eyes in the morning until the moment he goes to sleep at night, he thinks about making money for Berkshire Hathaway in a way that is obsessive. Well, he thinks about it, but how come he, but what's the secret of his very successful thought, his very successful achievement? Well, I think about those things, too, yeah. I don't... <laughs> Uh, not worth even one billion. Well, he he clearly had a, a prodigious um, aptitude for business that he demonstrated as a very small child. Mm -hmm. When he was six years old, he started his first business selling chewing gum around the neighborhood, and he had the temperament for it even then. He thought about it in a very businesslike way. He thought about profit margins, and he still remembers and is somewhat irate at a customer named Virginia McCubrey who wanted to buy one stick of gum from him, and he said they were sold in whole packs. 
and she wanted to spend a penny with me and they were a nickel. I said, we don't break up packs of gum. I've got my principles. And, you know, this was the person that he was at age six, and he's still that person now. So that came from somewhere at a very early age. Of course, his basic secret, as is quite obvious, is to buy low and sell high. But you have to know what's low and is likely to go high. He must have some kind of uh, stateable uh, working strategy for identifying good investments. What is the nature of that strategy? Well, he studied basic value investing under Ben Graham uh, beginning in Mm -hmm. 1948 with reading a book called The Intelligent Investor. And the principles are not that difficult, but what he does that is a bit different is that he applies them with absolute discipline, and he never gets distracted by anything else. So um, he occasionally has a brilliant insight, and he's made a lot of his money from brilliant insights like American Express, Coca-Cola, and that accounts for a lot of it. And he just sees the world in a different way, but he also just applies simple principles Consistently. Well, what are those Graham principles? Ben Graham is yeah. a famous investor. Yes. I'm sure. um, the Graham principles are to pay less for things than they are worth, use a margin of safety on the price so that you're getting things at a significant discount, buying a dollar bill for 50 cents, ignoring the vagaries of Mr. Market, um, don't let other people's uh, euphoria or depression and the way prices fluctuate affect how you invest, and looking at a stock as a little piece of a business, not something abstract uh, like numbers trading on a screen, but actually thinking of what the whole business is worth and then saying my share of that pie is worth X. You are his uh, commissioned biographer. Uh, He sought you out, he knew you, and he asked you to undertake this. You'd never done a book before, though you were doing a uh, a newsletter for which... Uh, 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 Payne Weber at the time. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, Morgan Stanley at the time we started to work on the book. And he knew you in that connection. Yes. And liked your writing. But he chose you to report his cause of right to the unsatisfied, as Shakespeare might say. Uh, why did he choose you? Uh, you know, he likes the way I write. Uh, he needed someone, obviously, that he would trust. He said he wanted to reconcile his public and private selves. I understand insurance. I understand Berkshire Hathaway. I understand the way he thinks about investing. And frankly, he has a preference for female journalists. Um, anybody who watches him on uh, TV will see it's usually somebody uh, that's female he's talking to. Um, so I actually had the idea for the book, and I proposed that he should write it himself. Uh-huh. But he turned the tables on me, and I ended up putting my hand up in the air. And you spent about five years in uh, frequent conversations with him. Yes. Uh, it took five years. I estimated I spent about 2,000 hours with him. Were those enjoyable hours? Uh, mostly, <laughs> yes. When were they not? Uh, well, you know, Warren is human like anybody else, and he's got all different sides to his personality. And uh, writing a book is... It's an extended negotiation process. Uh, although he told me at the beginning, write whatever you want. I won't, you know, try. But at the same time, you're interviewing, and you're an interviewer. You know how this is. So at one point, I actually had a professional negotiator come in to help me um, to figure out what to do because I was negotiating with the world's toughest negotiator. At least I thought so, and it helped. What did you have to negotiate? Well, what were the issues? you know, the issues are over material, over, you know, what are, what are you going to get and, you know, how to figure out the personality. Warren wanted me to write the book faster. 
he wanted it done yesterday and that's that's how he is about everything his employees can attest to that and i wanted to take the time to do it right and so we had a constant game going on of me wanting material from him and him using the material to try to get me to hurry up by not giving it to me of course you gathered the material not only from interviews with him but with many others uh, related to his whole story in total i talked to about 250 people mm-hmm. other than him including his sisters, his children, his close colleagues, his friends. You didn't talk to his wife. I did, but I didn't get to interview her extensively because... She died shortly after you started. Yes. She had. She was diagnosed with oral cancer, fought yeah. a battle with that, and then died of a stroke. She was a wife in name only for a good part of their marriage, it turns out. And the domestic side of the life of Warren Buffett is inevitably of some special interest because he's managed to accumulate $60 billion. But even if he hadn't, it would be an interesting story. Yes, it was a very interesting story because they had a relationship that was very unusual. He was very dependent on her emotionally. And, you know, they, they would travel together, they would go to public events together, and yet they each maintained separate personal lives that were complete and apart from this. She was the public wife. Yes, she and there was, was the a public. private one as well. Yes. So let's talk about his own life. Let's go to beginnings before we get to his complex uh, marital relationship. Um, he begins as, uh, is he born in Omaha or in Washington? He was born in Omaha. Though the, in his childhood, part of the time they're in Washington, as I remember. His father's a congressman. Yes, he moved when he was 13 to Washington. Yeah. By the way, how long did his father serve in Congress? He served four terms out of five. He went. He lost one term and then went back to serve a final Representing that congressional district of Nebraska. Yes. Uh, the mother seems to have been rather severe or not not as warm as one would want a mother to be. I That would be putting it mildly. Um, she was someone who would turn on her children. Uh, they would be going about their day, and she would suddenly snap and begin berating the children and calling them worthless. And Warren said that by the time he was three years old, uh, his spirit was broken, and it could not be put back together. And the father was amiable enough, but not all that present. Wasn't that present, wasn't particularly warm, uh, but a highly principled man whose strong sense of ethics greatly influenced the children. So he comes out of all of this motivated and certainly with some tremendous skills, but somehow emotionally needful as well. Yes, always looking for the the warmth that, that you would like in a parent that he didn't have. Even though I'm a psychologist by training, I hate to play psychologist when we talk about real people and do a radio program, but is it conceivable then that uh, money was a substitute for love? I have thought that possibly that might be the case, or possibly it gave him a sense of wholeness that he didn't feel inside. You know, it was something that he could look at and say, you know, here, as long as I have this, I am. Um, because his possessiveness about it... Um, I'm worth yeah. a great deal, which proves that I have worth. Exactly, yeah. yes. Uh, then uh, he goes off to, what is it, is it Wharton, where he gets his business training? He started at Wharton and then finished at the University of Nebraska. Yeah. And he learned something from that fellow that we mentioned earlier. Benjamin Graham. Who, uh, his book, Graham's book of many years ago, still sells, I think. It is still considered the classic, um, the seminal book on yeah. investing. The, the um, Intelligent Investor is the layman's version. Security Analysis is the textbook. Uh, his wife, where does he find her? How does he, 
How well, does he consolidate that? Well, Warren was never uh, very good at dating. Uh, he had uh, many dates that were failures. Uh, when he would get nervous, he would either talk uncontrollably or grunt. His throat would just sort of fail him, and he would grunt. He met Susan Thompson because she was the roommate of his sister, Roberta, at Northwestern, and Bernie mm-hmm. set them up on a date. And up to that point, Warren had had virtually no successful girls, except that somehow he had managed, when he went to school in New York, to date Miss Nebraska in 1949, who was as shy and insecure as him. Uh, so he met Susan Thompson, but she was in love with someone else. And so she dated him, but was indifferent to him. So Warren courted her father instead. How do you mean? Well, Susie would be out on dates with her other boyfriend, and Warren would go over to the Thompsons' house, sit on the front porch, and play his ukulele, an instrument that he had bought because it was cheap, and he would talk politics with Susie's father, who was a very conservative Republican. And the idea was to sell Susie's father on himself, and that might then rub off on Susie. Yes. Um, Susie's father did not want her to marry the guy that she was dating, mm-hmm. Milton Brown, because he was Jewish. And so Warren presented himself as an alternative who, as he put it, was Jewish enough for Susie, but not <laughs> not too Jewish for her father, uh-huh. because he was so insecure and needy that he felt that Susie would come around. In what sense Jewish enough for Susie? Well, Susie always wanted people who were in some way the, the underdog. Yeah. That was what she liked, um, and people who needed her in some way. So he was Sort of Jewish in the sense that he was an underdog. He was insecure. He didn't make up with girls. He was a wreck. He described himself as a mess. Uh-huh. He said he was on, you know, on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And Susie saw that. And so she had pity, or approached him with some mercy, or something. Her father was a psychologist. She was an amateur psychologist. Mm-hmm. And Susie was someone who, all her life surrounded herself with people who had problems and issues, and she was their quote-unquote doctor. How old was he when he married? He was 24 when he married. And what was he worth at that moment? Uh, He was worth, at that time, uh, probably in in the tens of thousands. I'm actually, you know, don't know, probably 30,000, something like that. No, in your book you say it was about 160,000. When they married? I think you say that. Okay, I thought maybe that was when they came back from New York. Oh, maybe so. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it was a well, lot. Jack, you have to multiply that by 10. Or by so. 10. For yeah. the time, it was an extraordinary amount of money. But where, how does he really take off? He really took off after he came back from working for Ben Graham in New York in yeah. 1956. He formed his own partnership, and he got together seven friends and family. They put in $105,000, which was a lot of money at the time, but by today's standards, nothing. As we say, multiply by 10. Multiply That's by 10, so, you know, million-dollar partnership uh, equivalent. And he started investing it, and he worked out of his study at home. He wore his bathrobe. He sat up all night eating potato chips and uh, was a night owl and just started investing. And he buys a little textile firm called Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. What were they making? Are, was that the source of Hathaway shirts by any chance? That's a lot of people think that it, they actually made men's suit linings. Uh-huh. So they made rayon suit linings, uh, but they were not profitable. It was a failing business, and he bought it uh, in a fit of irritation at the man who was running it, because he had had some stock, tried to sell it back to the company, and he felt that the guy had quote-unquote chiseled him out of Mm -hmm. 12 and a half cents a share. So, in anger, he basically decided to take the company away from this person, put together a group of investors, and they took over Berkshire. And then he realized what he had done. 
It never made any real money for him. It never did. He said, I wish I'd never heard of Berkshire Hathaway. Curiously, though, he kept the, he kept the fame. Yeah, he had a, an attachment to it. Um, yeah. he, he kept buying the shares. No matter how badly it was doing, he was always buying more stock. Well, what else did he begin to buy? How did he begin to cash in or rather begin to build a fortune? Well, he started buying really good companies because his partner, Charlie Munger, uh, whom he had met uh, in 1959, uh, had convinced him finally that um, failing companies that you tried to just extract a few bucks from were not the way to go. And companies like C's Candy, which was his first big acquisition of a quality company, would over the long term make you money year after year. C's Candy? Mm-hmm. Based in San Francisco, mm-hmm. I think. Do they still hold C's candy? They do. They own the whole thing. Really? Mm-hmm. That's good candy. It is good candy. Yeah, I did. I didn't know that was in their portfolio. Yeah, you know, if you go in Warren's office, you'll be surrounded by it, which is dangerous. Uh huh. What else did they acquire early on? Well, they bought a newspaper, the Buffalo Evening News. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had labor problems at that one, but it eventually worked out. They had a com- competition lawsuits. They bought Blue Chip Stamps, which was a trading stamp company, and that was another business that was dying, but it had a lot of cash, and they used that to buy other businesses. They bought the newspaper in Omaha as well, didn't they? They had a little newspaper called the Sun Newspapers in Omaha. Which that they expanded. Was, yeah, it was a weekly, and it had seven editions around town. And that was Warren's um, uh, crusader side that came out. They, that was his investigative journalist personality. Yes, he goes against either Father Flanagan or the successors to Father Flanagan. The successors. Boy, Boys Town in yes. Omaha. Boys Town. Um, he uh, got a whiff that Boys Town was hoarding money and not spending it on the boys, and that he had built this huge portfolio of assets and was just sitting on it. And the Sun newspapers did a huge investigatory piece that won a Pulitzer for investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. And one other, now the connection between Warren Buffett and my father, uh, which I told you about before we came on the air, uh, but I'll tell all the audience. My father was born in Poland, was an immigrant to this country, uh, had his own career as a, a painting contractor and builder at small scale level in New York. Eventually, he and my mother as they got older, moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where my brother was at one point the associate dean of the School of Agriculture. Uh, And then my mother died uh, full of years. And my father went on for a number of years later, always remained very compass mentis, but he got lonely for people of his own sort, namely elderly Jewish gentlemen and uh, elderly Jewish ladies. And the nearest place he could go to kind of get back into that sort of milieu was the Rose Blumpkin Memorial Home for the Jewish Aged in Omaha, Nebraska. You could take it from there. Yes. So Rose Blumkin was a Russian immigrant whom Warren had bought a business from, the Nebraska Furniture Mart. And she had built this business up starting from a pawn shop over many, many decades into the largest furniture business in the country in single location. And she was just a, a, a tank of a woman, very tiny. She rode around in her old age on a golf cart. Exactly. And she had made this incredibly successful business. She was still doing that at the age of 100, you see her in the store. The amazing thing is that Warren bought the company from her when she was 95. When she was 90, I, 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 maybe a couple years off here, but she got angry a couple years later and quit and started a competing business. Mm-hmm. And um, she came back when she was 98. He bought her new company from her for $5 million and made her sign a non-compete. And the I think he also extorted from her a promise that she would go on in active management. Yes, yes. She had to come in. She ran the business. Yes. And the non-compete did not start until five years after she either retired or left for whatever reason because he said, I thought she might go on forever, and I needed five years beyond forever with her. 
And with the money uh, uh, from that source, she did indeed endow this memorial home for the Jewish aged, which is a very nice place. Yes. As these things go. It is. Um, It is. I actually interviewed somebody there. Uh, She also bought a theater um, and redid a theater. She's one of many people that got rich because of their own businesses from selling it to Mm -hmm. Berkshire or... um, and uh, gave them a lot of money away to charity. Uh, let's come to the present moment in American financial life, which is rather disordered and rather worrying, though I guess the market shown a little bit more recovery even today. But Buffett um, would trace all of it, and he reported him as having this view even before the collapse, to uh, the plague of financial derivatives. In 2002, he referred to derivatives as financial weapons of mass destruction. And the issues with them are the fact that there was no central clearinghouse. Two sides to the transaction both be reported as gains. I have to ask you to take a step back and explain, because not everybody listening really understands, though they've probably heard the word by now, what is a derivative? Well, a derivative is a contract whose value is based on or derived from something else. So it might be the price of corn or oil or it might be interest rates, but it's basically a bet. It's either it's insurance or it's a bet based on some hypothetical number. And there are derivatives of derivatives, so to speak. Yes, there are derivatives of derivatives. So a derivative might be based on an index of other derivatives that have been recombined. Well, in the Buffettian analysis, how could that have produced the present catastrophe? Well, derivatives are used to manage risk, but they became used to also gamble and speculate. And people were using them to try to increase their returns to the point where there were mountains of derivatives, trillions of dollars worth of derivatives on mortgages, more mortgages, derivatives than you could ever imagine. And people were using borrowed money. To, um, to make these bets. Well, the ultimate nature of the present crisis is the failure to repay on mortgages. Yes. Uh, these are subprime, or really very subprime, yes. and people buy uh, houses that they can't afford. Uh, how could the, uh, the elaboration of the derivatives market have caused uh, a, grace, uh, a gross increase in the selling of subprime mortgages? Uh, if you take out a mortgage with a bank, what the bank was doing was selling off the loan, which was getting packaged into derivatives, and these were being resold to other investors. This was happening over and over, and the bank that was basically underwriting the loan got completely divorced from trying to figure out if you were going to pay back the mortgage or not. So more, you know, mortgage companies were underwriting people who should never have any reason to buy a house and couldn't afford one, and there were loans being made, and they were being sold as if they were good because the the chain had gotten so long. The capital of derivatives is probably the mercantile exchange right here in Chicago, where many of the derivative instruments were invented originally. And the inventor of some of the first ones, Leo Malamud, has been a guest on this program a few times. Well, if you have to use corn in producing some product and you know your shipment's coming in in six months and you want to hedge that price, a, a derivative bet on the price of corn is a great way to That's hedge your risk. corn futures. Corn futures, very yeah. simple, you know, oil futures. Um, but what we were talking about was very esoteric instruments that were based on, you know, big packages of mortgages that had been chopped up and people were just speculating on them and they were um, basically inducing through demand for these investments people to invest in houses that they couldn't afford. Now, there are two uh, major uh, entities that have come to the rescue. One is the government of the United States, uh, under Bernanke's uh, and Paulson's uh, guidance, 
with the voting of a $700 billion rescue package. And the other entity that's come to the rescue is not so much Berkshire Hathaway as Warren Buffett directly and in person. He's put some $8 billion in, hasn't he? He's invested $5 billion in Goldman Sachs and another $3 billion in General Electric, along with warrants to buy more. And all of this out of deep altruistic concern for the recovery <laughs> of uh, the financial markets. Uh, hardly. Um, Warren doesn't he ever... still sees a profit, doesn't he? Uh, he only invests for profit. Uh, he does like the management of those two companies, but he never invests altruistically. Well, I guess then he's, he's bottom-feeding those stocks are going at a rather low price right now. Uh, I, yes, that would certainly be the motivation. They were buying his reputation uh, because if Warren Buffett mm-hmm. will invest, then other people will invest. That builds confidence in the firm again. Yes. But he extracted some some special aspects to the deal, I think. He did. Um, you know, He got warrants that gave him the right to buy stock at a special price alongside um, the interest rate. And these deals also pay him a guaranteed 10% interest rate, which is, if you think of the rate you could get on a certificate of deposit right now of you know maybe 3% or something, think about a guaranteed 10% interest rate. That's pretty nice. Back to his family. I earlier said we wanted to talk about his domestic arrangements, but then I didn't really follow on uh, down the path I had opened. But there's time to do that right now. We've talked about his marriage, um, and that the marriage became a rather public affair rather than a private one. Another woman took the place of the wife in terms of a closer relationship, and she lived separately, but they appeared publicly together until she moved out to San Francisco, and she died... uh, only a few years ago, I believe. Yes. Um, in t- 1977, Susie Buffett uh, moved to San Francisco. She and Warren had lived more or less separate lives for several years before that. And uh, she went to San Francisco in part because you know her life had revolved around Warren, and she really just wanted a life of her own. Uh, but she was in a separate relationship, and Warren had been having a very romanticized relationship with Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington Post. Uh, But he's not capable of living uh, by himself in a relationship without a woman in his life day to day. So Susie, in an extraordinary situation, actually got her friend, Ostrid Minx, to come over and begin, you know, cooking for Warren. And lo and behold, five months later, Ostrid moved in with Warren, and she and Susie split the role of a wife for the next 27 years or so. 27 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Until the death of Susie, and then Ostrid and Warren married. Married in 2006. Yeah. And they are still together. They are. Um, It was very unconventional. They were very open about it, and it seemed to work for them. But as for Catherine Graham, that really surprised me. I met Catherine Graham a few times. She was on the program once when she did her big memoir. And uh, she was certainly a very impressive woman, and still rather a handsome one, though... Uh, I suppose into her mid to late 60s when I met her, maybe even a bit older than that. She died only a few years ago. Uh, The man whose name I couldn't remember earlier, but I remember it now, uh, she spends a whole chapter writing about Sidney Hyman, who was um, a a fellow student, uh, undergraduate with her at the University of Chicago, but she supposedly learned a great deal from Sidney. The way she writes about it, there's an intimation that there was something else going on between them. I know Sidney Hyman used to be a rather frequent guest on this program, and, but I've never made so bold as to ask him about this. Uh, still, she clearly uh, was a woman who formed liaisons. She did, um, although if you read her memoir, you know she was obviously sexually insecure, and she seemed to want to create the impression that she formed liaisons, uh-huh. perhaps more than she actually did. 
But Warren spent a good deal of time at her house, so to speak. Yes, and they traveled together. Um, they, you know, Catherine Graham told people that she had an affair with him. Um, she boasted of it, even. Uh, it's unclear how much of that was boasting and how much was really real, but they certainly had a very romanticized relationship. You know, mm-hmm. people said they didn't really have any real chemistry, but they certainly had a, you know, a fantasy, at a minimum, fantasy relationship with each other. Well, surely you've discussed this with Warren Buffett. Yes. Yes, but I can't corroborate anything that I, you know, that I've heard, and there's some conflicting information I've heard from different people, and so I think it's better since I can't ask her directly not to, you know. Something should be left obscure in, in privacy. Well, you know, if you can't corroborate, yes. Five nine one seven two double zero is our number. Some lines are available again. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try. And here is the first caller, and we go to Joe in Rockport. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, I, I don't know how many children Warren Buffett had, but I was wondering if the, what your uh, guest was going to say about that. And I know that Warren had a saying, or I read somewhere that he said he'd let, he would give his children enough that they'd be comfortable, but not so much that they wouldn't have to do anything. So I'll, I'm going to hang up and listen to your All right, answer. sir. Yeah, for a while it was put out that he was just giving them the paltry sum of a million apiece and saying, you're on your own. Didn't yes. quite work out that way, though, did it? Um, two sons, Howard and Peter, a daughter, Susan. Um, when they were little, he said he would give them almost nothing, and he now it's he wants them to have enough so that they can do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. Um, they're going to get some money from him. They got ten million each from Susie when she died, and they each have a billion dollar foundation to run that he gave them with Berkshire stock, which is a pretty nice job for life. Uh, what's their relation to their father? It's it's good now. Um, he was a fairly distant, absent father when they were young. People said that Susie was sort of a single mother, but you know he's done a lot of work to really repair that in recent years, and they get along really well now. What's the number of available grandchildren? Oh, uh, you know what? I, he has 17, I think, if you count step grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I, I might be off by a couple, but. And is he attentive to them? Does he is he closer to grandchildren than he was to his children? Uh, Warren and children are kind of, an, he he doesn't get children. Really? You know, yeah. So he's very friendly, but not, yeah. He you can't see him playing with them. Well, no. Does he get people? Is he capable of? warm, full, lasting friendship. Yes. You know, he has some very, very close, long-time friends, um, both men and women, um, people that he relates to on a personal and business level, and people ranging from Bill Gates, you know, to, you know, his women friends, but a lot of people. He's taken a good portion of his money, or at least he's designated that when he dies, the larger portion of his uh, fortune of $60 billion dollars will go into the Gates Foundation. Yes, he really trusts Bill and Melinda Gates. He thinks they're very smart. He agrees with their philosophy. And they have the the apparatus built to give away huge sums, which is a big task. We go back to the phones, 591-7200, the number, and to Anne here in Chicago. Good evening. Hi. First of all, Milt, thank you for the show. You're you're just like a professor who surprises his students every night with a different topic. Well, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> and I wanted to ask a caller, Alice, um, why it is you think he, uh, you think Warren Buffett supports uh, Barack Obama in this race. Uh, I, I also note that um, he has written some articles before in which it, it seemed to me a bit paternalistic, in which uh, he thought that the 
you know, the the blue collar, the pink collar workers wouldn't have a chance uh, to make money like he did. But why would he think that? Why could his secretary not be investing in the market the way he did? I just don't get this. Um, he's written about the fact that um, our tax structure charges a lower tax rate on investment income than it does on salaries. And so, therefore, because his secretary is getting paid um, for a salary and his money comes from investing, he pays automatically a lower tax rate than she does on her income. But if she were to be able to invest part of that, she would be able to partake in that, too. And, you know, with the capital gains program that Barack Obama has, where is the where is the profit in investing? She would be able to partake in that, but she doesn't have sixty billion dollars. Most of her money would still come from salary. He supports Barack Obama because uh, Warren is an egalitarian. He believes in narrowing the gap between the upper classes and rich people and everybody else. And he is somebody that does believe that government has a place, and he's he's very liberal in that sense. Um, and also because Barack Obama sought him out a few years ago and wanted to understand economics and finance, and um, Warren helped him learn. And I think a politician who understands business is probably a good thing for the country. Well... Thanks for thanks for explaining that. We thank you, ma'am, for the call. Bye-bye. Um, is it conceivable that he would go into government um, when Obama was asked, well, when both of the candidates were asked who might be an appropriate Secretary of the Treasury, they both said, well, somebody like Warren Buffett. Well, he would certainly be smart enough, um, and he will give advice to whoever is elected, I'm sure, but he loves running Berkshire Hathaway. He doesn't want to do anything that would give that up, and he would never let somebody control his time or have his day spent chewed up with meetings that way. He just wouldn't do it. He'd be smart enough to stay out of government. Yeah, he doesn't do meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 591-7200 is the number, and we've now got some lines cleared. If you uh, have a question to raise or a thought to share, move very quickly. We've got about six minutes left, and the lines are available to you. 591-7200. So you were plucked uh, out of your work uh, by Warren Buffett, who knew you, to do this biography. You've spent a number of years working on it. How has the extended contact with him and then with the saga of his life, how has it affected or possibly altered you? This work gave me an extended period of time to uh, contemplate human nature and what is the real purpose of life. You know, studying a man who spent most of his life thinking about piling up money and then now has faced um, the death of his friends, his wife, and has really rethought, you know, what am I doing here? What is this all about? And that was a, a very uh, good experience for me to have so much time thinking about that. I also learned a lot of Warren Buffett's um, techniques for managing his time. I mentioned negotiating earlier. And he is very good in his relationships with people. He's very good in sorting out and figuring out how honest people are, how selfish they are. And I sort of picked up uh, his way of doing that the best I could. Really? Mm-hmm. But what are, so what are the, what's the, the Buffett's art of reading the secrets of personality. Well, he likes to sort people into people who are honest when somebody's looking and people mm -hmm. who are honest all the time. And, you know, he can just ask questions that um, ask people to, to reveal things or divulge things that are uncomfortable and, you know, see how willing they are to do that. And, you know, there are people who are and people who aren't, hmm. for example. Let's work in one or two more quick calls. Here's Jim in Lombard. Good evening. Yeah, hi. Uh, just 
I'm on, I don't know, 500 and something of the book. It's one of the few books I've read where I'm that far and uh, and not more than about two-thirds done. But just looking at everything, it seems as though Warren Buffett is, in the story, he's buying all these companies, uh, the stamp company and the other companies that don't make much money and that are kind of foundering. And then all of a sudden I cross the page that shows uh, – what all the corporations are, and it seems that most of the big money makers are insurance companies. Uh, there's a lot of talk that in the book about learning the insurance business, and it seemed to me what it did was give him uh, money that uh, that the insureds uh, would give to the insurance company, and then he knew how to invest that, and then take the over profits that they didn't. Uh, wind up spending and buying bigger companies. It seems to me like he's a little bit like a, a massive W. Clement Stone or something like that. Interesting read. Let's find out whether uh, that coincides with uh, what Alice Schroeder perceives about him. Yes, it's a, like two sides of a coin. The insurance businesses provide the float, the money for the investment in other businesses, and then if the insurance businesses have a loss, he can pull money back out of the other businesses to pay off the claims. One of the interesting things about uh, Berkshire Hathaway is that they've never had a split in a stock price, so that now the usual price is about what? Uh, around 120 to 130 thousand dollars a share. Right per now. share. Yeah. Is it still worth buying into? Do you think? You know, I haven't been an analyst for five years, and so I actually don't put a value on the stock anymore. I'm not even qualified to do it, mm -hmm. so I can't really answer that question. Well, what has the uh, the share price done by way of fluctuation? Well, in the last decade, uh, it has essentially doubled, and that's at a time when the market is actually down during that period. So it's certainly done a lot better than the market. I've got an email question here, which we can only work in very quickly, uh, but this um, listener asks simply, what was Warren Buffett's worst investment? Uh, his worst investment was a gas station he invested in when he was uh, just out of college, and he lost a couple thousand dollars, and the compounded effect of that loss is huge. But he would also say Dexter Shoe, a shoe company that he bought, making a bet that people's interest in buying imported shoes would um, go away, which was not the smartest thing. He's never been great at fashion. And uh, the need to move the plants offshore was what killed them. They, you know, mm -hmm. Onshore manufacturing was not affordable. Bad investment. Um, whatever this book costs, it, it once went and purchased it would be a very good investment. Well, this thank is you. Very readable, and it gives you a full insight into, and the full uh, rich uh, narrative detail into the life of an American we all know about, and we all marvel at somewhat, Warren Buffett. And uh, that book by Alice Schroeder is titled The Snowball Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. And it's just published by Bantam and is available wherever they sell real books. And I thank you most uh, earnestly for joining us tonight. Milt, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. And we're talking with Adam Kirsch, who's done a very interesting new uh, biography, one might call it, or uh, analysis or study or meditation on the life of Benjamin Disraeli. Is it a meditation as much as a biography? It is. It is. It's a biographical essay, you might say. It's not a full-length biography. Yeah. And uh, Disraeli's life has been written about so many times, and at such great length that uh, I think a new approach of my book is really a Jewish look at Disraeli uh, is something that there's room for in the literature. Of course, I refer to him just now as the, the only Jewish prime minister of England, though he himself was 
a communicant of the Anglican Church. He was. He was baptized into the Church of England at the age of 12, along with his three siblings, and it was his father's decision to do that. His father didn't convert himself, but he had his children baptized, mainly, I think, because he wanted them to have access to the mainstream of English life. And if it hadn't been for that decision, Benjamin Disraeli could never have become Prime Minister of England because uh, until fairly late in his career, you had to swear an oath upon the true faith of a Christian in order to sit in Parliament at all. So if he hadn't been a Christian, he could not have been the most famous Jew in England. Did he at all have the true faith of a Christian, or was it just a matter of, of pragmatic adaptation? Well, one of the many anecdotes uh, associated with Disraeli, although like many of them, it's hard to say whether it's really true, is that someone asked him, uh, whether he really believed, he said, I have the same faith as all wise men. And when he was asked what was that, he said, wise men never tell. So it's possible that he had some reservations, but certainly he was a strong supporter of the Church of England, mainly as a social institution. He was the head of the Conservative Party. That was the party that was associated with the Church, and he always spoke strongly about the need for the Church in public life. He is a very engaging, dashing character long before he becomes Prime Minister. He enters Parliament rather early. What age is he when he's first elected? He was 33. He had yeah. made his first attempt five years earlier. It took him several tries before he finally got in. But at 33, he's already a rather well-established popular novelist. That's right. He first became a public figure when he was just 21, when he published his first novel. Now, his father, Isaac Disraeli, had already made a fairly big reputation as a writer, so the name Disraeli meant something in the literary world. Uh, when Benjamin Disraeli published his first novel. It was called Vivian Gray, and it was a, a scandalous success because it was published anonymously, and the publisher gave out that it was by a member of the aristocracy who was giving you sort of the inside dirt on what high life was really like. When it was revealed that, in fact, it was by Benjamin Disraeli, who was a middle-class Jew who didn't really know much about high society, there was a great scandal. And for several years, he was sort of driven out of public life because of the negative reaction. But he hung around in London and elsewhere, uh, striking various poses and looking rather, um, well, rather exotic, one might say. He was. By uh, choice. By choice and also by uh, birth. I mean, you could say his biology already marked him out as not looking English, and that's something researching the book that I found that whenever anyone left their eyewitness view of Disraeli, they always said he did not look English. You could immediately tell you were dealing with someone who wasn't an Englishman. So uh, in that sense, he looked exotic, but he also played that up. It was a good example of how he took what might have been a weakness and made it into a strength. He made himself into a dandy. He dressed in extravagant clothes. He did his hair up. He wore jewelry, um, all of which was part of the cult of Byron. This was the 1820s when Byron, the poet, was at the height of his fame and then died. And Disraeli sort of worshipped him, made a, a habit of imitating Byron. He even hired one of Byron's servants to be his own servant. And he wanted to uh, look, as Byron had, very striking and distinguished. Somehow he reminds you of something that came half a generation or a generation or two later. I uh, think of Oscar Wilde and the poses he struck. And if you're anxious for to shine in the high aesthetic line as a man of culture rare, you remember that one? Yeah, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Disraeli has a lot of similarities with Wilde. In fact, if you read Disraeli's novels, which not very many people do these days, uh, they're very Wildean. They take a very satirical view of uh, English society. They're full of quips and epigrams. Um, and, of course, in his private life, too, he was known as a wit. So there is definitely something Wildean about Disraeli. His novels also, of course, very often feature a mysterious figure of tremendous power who is Jewish. 
and somehow knows everything and has control over everything. One of the things that was most um, sort of shocking to me learning about Disraeli reading his books is that he invented this character called Sidonia. He wrote three novels where Sidonia was a character, his three best novels really, all in the 1840s. And what Sidonia is is a sort of imaginary myth of Jewish power in many ways what we would now think of as anti-Semitic. This is a character who controls things from behind the scenes. He has great wealth, um, but no one knows exactly where it came from. He has contacts with revolutionaries, and he also runs governments from behind the scenes. And in addition, Disraeli says he has strange sexual appetites, and he prefers to be with courtesans. He can't know true love. All kinds of very negative things one might think, and yet it's obvious that when Disraeli created this character, he was trying to create a glamorous myth of uh, Jewish power, which is something that he was very interested in throughout his life, to associate Jews with power and intrigue rather than with um, negative images that they have been. One wonders if the great Nazi anti-Semitic propagandist Julius Streicher ever read those novels. Uh, I don't know about him, but I know that Houston Stewart Chamberlain definitely did. Chamberlain was one of Hitler's favorite writers, and he was an Englishman who moved to Germany and wrote a book called The Foundations of the 19th Century, which was a classic uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy book. And I looked at it, and in that book, there's a footnote in which he says, if you want to know the truth about the Jews, just read Disraeli's novels. He tells you what's really going on. Um, Disraeli believed in a sort of racial myth of his own. Of course, for him, the Jewish race was a good one, and for Chamberlain and the Nazis, it was the worst one, but they both agreed that the Jewish race had uh, strange and special powers. The whole thing was obviously a sort of defensive stance, and rather than being defensive, he turns it into offensive and aggressive. That's right. Uh, one thing I write about in the book is that when Disraeli came on the scene in the 1820s and 30s, there were very few Jews in England at all. Most most Englishmen never encountered Jews, and when they did, it was usually in the form of peddlers because they were associated with the old clothes trade in and London. And they caricature him that way in some of the uh, early cartoonish assaults. That's right. Uh, the magazine Punch, which was sort of the semi-official journal of Victorian mm. life, had, would always caricature Disraeli as a, a rag dealer, an old clothes peddler, and they made him speak with a thick accent. Um, so that was sort of the background that Disraeli was setting, setting himself against, and he decided rather than be seen as a contemptible or a low figure, I would rather the Jews be seen as powerful and mysterious figures like Sidonia or like the Rothschilds, who he associated with in his private life and political life. One thinks also, if you're just looking for literary uh, associations, one thinks of the character of Fagin in Dickens' uh, David Copperfield. Yes, right, Fagin the thief uh, who runs a gift pocket. And who's clearly Jewish. Yes. And that's an anti-Semitic portrait uh, developed by Dickens himself. Absolutely, although I think I, I remember that later in life when some Jews made protests to Dickens, he created a good Jewish character in one of his later novels, mm -hmm. maybe Our Mutual Friend, uh, to counteract what he had done earlier. Actually, British literature of that century is loaded with meditations upon and with reactions to the strange, the presence of strange Jews. Uh, Elliot, George Eliot's uh, Daniel Deronda clearly is a major work in that category. That's right. In fact, uh, I start out my book on Disraeli by talking about two novels that were published in the same year, 1876, which was right in the middle of Disraeli's term as prime minister. One is Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, 
which is a great pro-Jewish novel in which there's a, a hero who is raised as an Englishman, discovers that he's actually Jewish and has been adopted, and in the end he decides to work for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. So it's sort of an early Zionist novel. Uh, at the same time, there was another novel called The Prime Minister by Anthony Trollope, which was largely about the schemes of an evil Jewish character named Ferdinand Lopez, who sets out to ruin an Englishwoman and steal all her money. Um, and these are sort of two dueling images of Jews right at the height of Disraeli's career. And even, even in the case of Lopez, there's some ambiguity, not that it's ambiguous in Trollope's mind, but there's some confusion in London circles whether Lopez is or is not Jewish. That's right. He's He admits to being Portuguese, but not yeah. Jewish. Um, but of course, at the time, that was a connection that would have been easy to make because the very first Jews to come to England in the 17th century were Portuguese and Spanish Jews uh, who were fleeing persecution there, who had left after 1492. Many of them went to Holland and then made their way to England. So what all of these have in common, except that Disraeli kind of overturns uh, this trope, is the trope of the hidden Jew. That's right. And Disraeli didn't so much overturn it as he played with it. I mean, he himself is someone who was both Jewish and not Jewish at yeah. the same time. He called himself the blank page between the Old Testament and the New. Adam Kirsch, by the way, that's spelled K-I-R-S-C-H. I tell you that because you will want to get your hands on this fine new uh, work by Adam Kirsch, Benjamin Disraeli. This is, in that Shalkin series, uh, focused on Jewish issues or Jewish personalities. That's right. It's part of a series called Jewish Encounters that's published by Schocken and co-sponsored by Nextbook, which is a Jewish uh, literary cultural mm -hmm. foundation. And there are many biographies in the series, including Spinoza and uh, King David and other figures, but there are also things about Jewish institutions or experiences, like there's one about the dairy restaurant and so forth. And a fine book on Maimonides. That's right, by Sherwin Newland. Yeah. Uh, let's come directly to the life, but let's go to the father to begin with, uh, Isaac Disraeli. He was a collector of literary anecdotes, among other things. He was. Isaac Disraeli uh, was the first generation of the family to be born in England. His father had come as an immigrant and had made quite a lot of money as a stockbroker. So they, are, they are a Sephardic family. Sephardic, they? yes. Where did the father come from? From Italy. Yeah. He, he immigrated from a town called Cento in Italy. Uh, and that was in 1748. It's worth noting that the name Disraeli means of the Jews or of Israel. That's right. And in fact, Disraeli had some myths about where he thought that name came from. He once wrote that his ancestors had chosen that name deliberately out of gratitude to the God of Jacob. Uh, later researchers have said that that's almost certainly not the case. It was actually not an uncommon name to be called Israeli. Uh, it was when the grandfather came to England that he added the D because it sounded better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, Isaac Disraeli was someone who inherited enough money that he didn't have to work, and that enabled him to devote his life to literature. He was known as a very mild-mannered man who loved nothing better than to spend his time in the British Library looking up old literary anecdotes, which he would then write up into essays. And he published a series of very popular books with titles like Quarrels of Authors, Calamities of Authors, Curiosities of Literature, uh, which won him a, a pretty sizable reputation. And they're fun to read. I looked at that material some years ago. Curiosities. Yes, yes, uh, they are very fun. Interesting anecdotes. Yes, yeah. and in fact, Byron, who we spoke about earlier, said that one of his favorite books was uh, Isaac Disraeli's. But Isaac Disraeli uh, didn't really directly address issues of Jewish concern at all, did he? Mostly not. He mostly wrote about English history, but there is one book which he wrote specifically about Judaism called The Genius of Judaism, 
It was published in 1833, and I was able to find a, an original copy of it in the uh, Jewish division of the New York Public Library. And it's a fascinating book because it shows you a man of the Enlightenment, which he was, an admirer of Voltaire, grappling with Judaism and trying to reconcile um, being a Jew with being an Englishman. Uh, Isaac Disraeli's solution was more or less to assimilate. He said that the Jews had to stop educating their children like mm -hmm. the children of Palestine and start educating them like the children of England. He said they should put the Talmud up on the top shelf and stop referring to it, all of which is pretty standard uh, for a man of his generation, but rather different from the approach that his son would grow up to take. You say someplace in the book that the only country that you're aware of in which there's no inner conflict or confusion on the part of Jews as to how much of their identity they ought to show publicly is America. Yes. Do you I, stand by that? I think there there is conflict, of course, although I'd say it's gotten less and less with every generation. But if you compare it to England, even to this day, I think it's much easier um, to be an American Jew than an English Jew, if only because America is a country of minorities and a country of immigrants. Um, almost all of us are members of one group or another, so you don't have to be a member of a particular race or religion in order to be an American, whereas in England there is an English race, an English uh, ethnic group, and if you're not part of it, then you are definitely marked as an outsider in England, not just Jews, but later waves of immigrants as well. In my own youthful travels around Europe a uh, long, long time ago, but in my first encounters, more than once I had somebody whisper to me, you know, I'm a Jew, too. That is, a Hungarian tour guide, yeah. a very charming young man, yeah. whispered that to me yeah. as we got off the bus and asked if we could talk later. And uh, a, uh, the main, uh, somebody who maintained a small pension in, uh, in Vienna, actually, as we uh, came there, he whispered to us, that, uh, he says, Rosenberg, you're Jewish, right? I said, yes, I am, too. Uh, it was amazing to me to encounter that degree of secret Jewishness. Which you would never uh, think to find here in America. No, because, uh, you wave Jewish, it proudly. Jewish identity is very uh, something to be proud of. But I would have thought that in England also it was rather an open declaration and a matter of some pride, if only uh, the way had been paved by people like the Israeli. There are many other eminent English Jews who had prominence certainly in academic life, in artistic life, and even in government. There are definitely, uh, there's a long tradition and in, in business as well and you could say that the English Jewish community is, has had achievements out of proportion to its numbers but I think that there is a sense of being a little bit on the outside in a certain way which is hard to shake. Yeah, and it does show up to be sure in some of the literature. Trollope is full of uh, a certain amount of condescension towards the pushy Arivist Jews. Yes, and in fact uh, Isaiah Berlin whose letters were published uh, a few years ago, said that he thought of himself as a metic, in other words, a resident foreigner in England, even though he spent almost all of his life there. Hmm. Back to Disraeli, who um, opened up the whole issue, I suppose, but with his public career. But let's go to the very beginnings of his career. What's he like? As a, uh, we, we said he was rather demonstrative and rather uh, exotic by choice, uh, but uh, what's the quality of his accomplishment as a young man? Well, from the very earliest age, even as a teenager, he was very ambitious, and he was mainly ambitious for power. He wanted to be a great man. This was a, the age of Romanticism. It was in the aftermath of Napoleon, and there were young men like Disraeli all over Europe dreaming about greatness and great deeds. Uh, 
what makes him different is that he was someone who started out as a writer imagining greatness and great power and then actually won it for himself as a politician, which is an extremely rare combination. Um, in one way, Disraeli is a little bit like Hans Christian Andersen as a romantic writer, uh, someone who wrote a story that's a little bit like The Ugly Duckling uh, when he wrote his autobiography, uh, Contarini Fleming. That's a novel that is sort of heavily based on his own life in which it's like The Ugly Duckling. It's a story about a young man who discovers that he's different from everyone around him and he has special gifts and powers and eventually he redeems himself and uh, becomes a great poet. In real life, what Disraeli wanted was to become a politician. And one of the amazing things about his story is that although he had so many of the odds against him, he actually did manage to achieve his dream. Of course, on the way, he becomes a lawyer. He uh, is at Gray's Inn, isn't he, for... He was. Or the uh, ends of court, I forget which one. But. He was apprenticed as a lawyer for several years uh, right after he finished his schooling. He didn't actually go to a university. He went straight from school to a law firm. But well, he that's never why he became him. a lawyer in those days. Right. Yeah. Uh, his father set it up and arranged this for him, and he thought it would be a good, safe career. And that's exactly why Disraeli didn't like it. He wanted something much greater than that. But he lingered there at the ends for a number of years? He was there for three or four years, and then when he was 20, he went on a trip to Germany with his father, and when he came mm -hmm. back, he decided he wasn't going back to the law firm. He was going to make a name for himself uh, somehow, one way or another. Well, beyond Contarini Fleming, uh, what else does he do by way of uh, novels early on? Uh, after his early uh, sort of debacle with Vivian Gray, that was the novel that made him famous but also scandalous, he wrote a series of novels, uh, some more serious and ambitious than others. Contarini Fleming, which he called a psychological romance, was the one of his novels that he liked the best, uh, in part because it was so heavily based on his own psyche. Uh, it doesn't read very well today, I don't think. You wouldn't necessarily read it unless you were interested in Disraeli. Uh, but he wrote a novel loosely based on the life of Byron called Venetia. He wrote a romantic novel called Henrietta Temple. He wrote a novel called The Young Duke about uh, a duke who comes into a fabulous fortune. So he was really both trying to make a living and make a name for himself by writing fiction. Now, as you scan the novels, apart from that last trilogy in which Sidonia uh, figures as the central mysterious character, as you scan, what themes emerge? What does one learn about the man from whom the novels came? Well, his novels really come in three phases, you could say. The early phase are romantic autobiographical novels that he wrote as a young man. Then, in 1837, he got into Parliament, which is something he'd been trying to do uh, without success for several years. He had to fight five contests before he was finally elected. Uh, in the process, he went into huge debt, because at the time, to run for Parliament meant paying a lot of bribes. Um, to the people who could vote for you. So by the time he got into Parliament, he had sort of uh, written himself out. Uh, then came a few years in which he tried to make headway in the Conservative Party, but without success. He had gotten into Parliament, but he wasn't trusted by the leadership of the party, and they wouldn't give him a role in the government. It was at that point that he returned to novel writing in the 1840s, and he wrote his great trilogy of novels about politics and society. A word about you before we get back to Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, I've been reading you for some years in a fine newspaper which suddenly, within the last month or so, has disappeared. That's right. It's the late lamented New York Sun, which started publishing in 2002. And you were more or less the official book critic. I, I was. I, I wrote uh, regularly about all kinds of books, uh, fiction and nonfiction. And uh, it was a terrific paper to write for, to work for, and also, I think, a great one to read, and it's much missed in New York. I miss it uh, considerably. As a matter of fact, uh, we did a number of podcasts for the New York Sun, special just for them, which are 
which were posted on their website. I think they're still there, even though the paper has disappeared. Yes, the website is still now, still there, at least for the time being, nysun.com. And if you go to that and uh, pursue it by entering whatever you're supposed to enter, you'll find those podcasts with me interviewing on each of them, some separate uh, interesting and distinguished figure, many of them literary, in fact. Back to Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, uh, let's go directly to the politics. Uh, you say he had trouble getting elected. He ran, he stood, as they say, three or four times before getting elected. And he stood as a radical. He shifted to the Tories only, I think, when he failed to succeed as a Whig. That's right. And uh, he was actually even to the left of the Whigs. He started his career in the early 1830s, which was a very um, difficult time in English politics. It was a time when England seemed like it might be on the brink of a revolution. There had just been a revolution in France, and there was a great demand, especially from the middle class and from people who lived in the northern industrial cities, to be represented in Parliament. Uh, the franchise was very narrow at the time. Only about half a million people in the whole country had the right to vote out of about 12 million. So there was a great agitation for reform, as it was called, and the Reform Bill, which was finally passed in 1832, is one of those landmark events in English history that really changed its course. Uh, it put England on the road to becoming a modern democracy. At the time, being a radical meant being pro-reform, and, and Disraeli was, which meant that when he first stood for election in 1832, he called himself an independent radical. He didn't want to be associated with any of the parties. Uh, but that didn't work out very well for him. He stood two or three times on his own platform, couldn't get elected. And then he made what seems, at, in retrospect, and even at the time to some people, the surprising move of becoming a conservative, a Tory. Uh, he was often asked about how he could go from being a radical to being a conservative. And he said that it was because in his vision of what it meant to be a conservative, it meant representing the whole nation. And in particular, he meant that the aristocracy, the gentry who were the backbone of the conservative party, had an obligation to represent and to take care of the needs of the poor and the workers. He felt that the Whigs, who would soon be known as the liberals, were just out for the middle class. Uh, they only cared about employers, not employees. They didn't care for the public good, only private interests. So for him, being a radical led to being a conservative, although that was very unusual at the time. His very first appearance uh, in uh, the House of Commons uh, is... Uh, a failure, or at least a put-down. They shout him down, literally. That's right. One of the enemies that he had made during his career already was the Irish Catholic leader, Daniel O'Connell, who is a towering figure in Irish history because he was the man who fought for and won Catholic emancipation, the right for Catholics to have the same political and civil rights as Protestants in England. Um, at one point during his career, he had sought Daniel O'Connell's endorsement. Then he had turned against O'Connell, and he made a speech, I think this was in 1834, where he blamed the Whigs for treating O'Connell as an ally when in the past they considered him a traitor. Well, when O'Connell heard about that speech, he thought that it meant that Disraeli was calling him a traitor, and he reacted very strongly and said that Disraeli must have been a descendant of the thief on the cross who was crucified along with Jesus because he was the worst kind of Jew. And Disraeli reacted furiously to this. He even tried to challenge O'Connell to a duel, although he refused to fight. The sequel was that when Disraeli finally made it into Parliament, when he got up to make his first speech, which was a very flowery and eloquent one, the Irish members of Parliament, who were very loyal to O'Connell, shouted him down. They wouldn't let him finish his speech. And at the end, he said, you can shout me down now, but I promise the day will come when you will hear me. 
was his Jewishness used against him in epithet-like uh, manner within uh, Parliament itself? Not in the same way as it was in crowd settings. Sometimes when he was campaigning, for instance, people would uh, put pieces of pork on the end of a stick and wave it in his face, or at one of his rallies someone rode up on a donkey and said, I've come to take you back to Jerusalem where you belong. Uh, that kind of thing didn't go on inside Parliament, but it's definitely true that he was not trusted, even by his own allies, um, as well as he should have been, considering how much he had done for their cause. Even when he reached the height of his power, when he had been in Parliament for decades and decades and became Prime Minister, there were many people who said, we can't believe that there's going to be a Jew as Prime Minister of England. Um, so it did work against him. Yet it didn't daunt him, it didn't impede him. In a strange way, it was both the greatest obstacle to his uh, career and also the greatest engine yeah. for his ambition, because he knew how unlikely it was that coming from a Jewish background, he would be able to rise to the top of the greasy pole, as he called it, of English politics. And he devoted his life to turning Jewishness from a handicap into a kind of asset, and that was responsible for a lot of what makes him interesting today. Yes, and uh, that leads to the necessary and fascinating question, how did he rise? to the top of the greasy pole? Well, there were two sides to the question. One was that he was extremely persistent. Uh, he got into politics in 1832. He was elected to Parliament in 1837, and it wasn't until 1874 that he was elected to a full term as Prime Minister. So in other words, he spent... And he's about 70 years old. He was 70 years old. He spent most of his career in opposition without any real power because the Conservatives were the opposition party for most of that time. So he stuck to it. He didn't give up. Uh, and considering that he was very impetuous and very ambitious from a young age, it's remarkable how patient he was able to be. The other uh, side of it was that he was very lucky... Uh, in terms of exploiting certain political, tactical situations in Parliament. Uh, his great achievement early in his career, the thing that put him at the top of the Conservative Party, was that he helped to overthrow a sitting Prime Minister, Robert Peel. Peel was the head of the Conservative Party. He was uh, greatly admired in the country, and he looked like he might be on top for a very long time. If that happened, that meant Disraeli would never rise in the Conservative Party because Peel didn't like him and didn't trust him. So Disraeli, with his genius for uh, politics, saw that there was one issue where Peel was vulnerable, and that was the Corn Laws. The Corn Laws essentially were a question of free trade. The liberals thought that there should not be any tariffs on importing food, and the conservatives, whose constituents, many of whom were farmers, wanted there to be a tax on imported food. So this became one of the great political debates of the era. It was really a question of free trade versus protection. Disraeli was on the protectionist side, and Peel was on the free trade side. And it was because of that division in the Conservative Party that Disraeli was able to rally them around him to overthrow their leader and eventually take Peel's place. Now, by the time, because he had a, a brief earlier run as Prime Minister for less than a year. That's right. His first turn at being Prime Minister came in 1868. That was when the longtime chief of the party, the Earl of Derby, retired, uh, and soon afterward he would die. Uh, Disraeli was his number two man, and they were in a minority government. In other words, they had managed to take power, but they were in a minority in Parliament, which meant that their hold on power was very insecure. So to take office at that time meant that he was 
more or less a caretaker. Uh, but he did manage to be prime minister for about 10 months in 1868 before he was soundly defeated at the polls by Gladstone and the Liberals. He also had a number of pitches as Chancellor of the Exchequer. He did. Which is really uh, the second ranking political position. That's right. And in that position, he was in charge of preparing the budget, which was an ironic job for someone like Disraeli, whose own finance in complete mm-hmm. disarray almost all the time. Uh, but he was given that job uh, on the rare occasions when the conservatives managed to take the reins of power. We've said nothing so far about his personal life, and the key to his personal life <coughs> is his wife, some 12 years older than he was. That's right. He married, uh, in fact, the widow of his parliamentary colleague. Uh, her name was Marianne Evans, and one reason he married her, he made this very clear when he was courting her, was that her connections and her money would be helpful to him in public life. But although that w- might have been the reason they started out getting married, they developed into a legendary partnership, and by the time she died, which was before his great term of office, um, Disraeli's marriage was known as one of the great Victorian marriages. They were very close. Never had children. They never had children, and I discuss in the book how he might have expected this when he married Marianne, who was 45 when they got married and had never had children before. He must have assumed that that meant he would never be a father. And I I wonder if he liked that idea, partly for personal reasons, because he could be the center of attention, and partly for larger reasons, that he wouldn't have to face the choice of raising his children as Christians or as Jews. So he was the last of his line, so to speak. He was. He had no children of his four... There were four children in his generation of the family. Of them, only one had children, uh, and that child died without issue. So after the 1920s, I think there were no more Disraelis. Um, And... As I was saying a moment ago, with the other woman of great importance in his life, so there were many women in his life, even before he got married, obviously, but his relationship to Queen Victoria is of great interest. That's right. Uh, Queen Victoria reigned for more than 60 years, and Disraeli was actually first elected to Parliament in 1837 in the election that was called when she came to the throne. Uh, When there's a new monarch, there's automatically a new election. And that meant that for his entire career, he served only one monarch, Queen Victoria. Uh, Victoria had many prime ministers, but Disraeli came to be her favorite, which is surprising considering how very different they were in temperament and especially background. But... um, in a way, it also makes sense, because Disraeli was very good at charming women, especially older women. Uh, even before he married his wife, who was older than him, he had a series of mistresses who tended to be older. I think he liked uh, turning women into mother figures, partly because he had a difficult relationship with his own mother. Victoria was sort of the the greatest example of this. He knew just how to talk to her. He flattered her. He wrote her very poetic letters. He told her gossip that no one else was willing to tell her. He sometimes adopted an almost uh, amorous tone with her. On one occasion, after there was a great legislative victory, he kissed her hand um, three times. Were they just about matched in age, or was he... She was uh, a bit younger, I believe, but more or less matched, yes. And uh, it was a surprising friendship, and other people were not too happy with it because as a constitutional monarch, Victoria wasn't supposed to take sides. But when it came to the great rivalry between Disraeli and Gladstone, uh, Victoria really couldn't stand Gladstone. She thought Doesn't she someplace say Gladstone addresses me as if I were as if he were at a public meeting, something like that. Exactly. She thought that he was always lecturing her, telling her what she should and shouldn't do and not letting her have what she wanted. Whereas Disraeli, although sometimes he couldn't let her have what she wanted either, at least knew how to do it in a, a more sensitive way. Well what did she want? And which requests of hers did he honor, which ones did he dissuade her to abandon? Well, one of the main 
issues in this period of Victoria's life was that after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, she virtually retired from public life. She didn't want to do any of her public mm -hmm. duties. So it was up to the prime ministers to try to beg her to appear in public and, and commit to some of the ceremonial aspects of being queen. Um, but the thing that really drew them together that, that made Disraeli and Victoria partners was that they agreed on a fairly belligerent foreign policy. Uh, in particular around the time of the Bulgarian crisis in the mid-1870s and the Congress of Berlin in 1878. That was an extended uh, period of diplomatic intrigue which led almost to a war between Britain and Russia. One must instantly ask, what in the world was the Bulgarian crisis? Well, this was really the central episode of Disraeli's uh, term of office, and it's something that we isn't very well remembered today, but at the time it was a huge controversy. It was um, something that just divided English society and turned people against each other, families split over it. Essentially what it was was whether England should continue its traditional policy of supporting Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, or whether it should turn against Turkey because of the way that the Turks were mistreating Christians in Bulgaria. They supposedly uh, murdered a large number of Christians in Bulgaria. Right. There the was Ottoman Turk, uh, uh, or the Ottoman troops, I guess. There was a great massacre in 1876 where about 12,000 Bulgarian Christians were killed by Turkish soldiers, and this led to a giant public outcry in England because they felt uh, solidarity with these victims, which put Disraeli in a very difficult position. Uh, in terms of power politics, he felt it was of greater benefit to England to be allies with Turkey, in particular because they wanted to keep Russia out of uh, the areas that traditionally Turkey had controlled. There was uh, what Rudyard Kipling called the Great Game, this duel for influence between Britain and Russia over the Mediterranean and uh, particularly India. So Disraeli thought, we need a strong Ottoman Empire, which means that we can't take the side of the Bulgarians. Gladstone thought that the moral thing to do was to take the side of the Bulgarians, and he didn't care whether it meant the end of the Ottoman Empire. Disraeli and Victoria saw eye to eye on this. Victoria also thought that the, in the interests of the British Empire should come first above any moralistic considerations. So in a very difficult period of political crisis and debate, Disraeli and Victoria were allies, and it brought them closer together than they had ever been. The other big project that they shared, and that he really pushed through, was the Suez Canal. Right. One of the most uh, legendary episodes of his career is that in 1875, there was a, a chance for the British government to buy a half share in the Suez Canal Company and the ruler of Egypt needed to sell because he was greatly in debt and he was going to sell to a French company. The French already owned half of the Suez Canal and if they had bought the other half they would have owned all of it and Disraeli thought that this would have been a disaster for England because England relied on the canal to connect it to its Indian Empire. At the time that this was going on, Parliament was out of session, which meant that there was no one to vote for the funds that were needed to move quickly and buy the canal. So Disraeli approached his old friend, the Rothschild family, who owned a, a famous investment bank, and he got the Rothschild to make a very large loan on the spur of the moment to the government with which he was able to buy the canal, or as he put it, buy the canal. In fact, he was just buying half share of the canal and presented it to Victoria as though it were a personal gift to her. He also persuades her, I gather she originally sort of resisted this, to allow herself to be designated the Empress of India. Well, it's an interesting uh, irony. In fact, that was something Victoria wanted very much, and she thought that it would be good, particularly for the 
prestige of the Indian Empire. She thought the Tsar of Russia was an emperor. She should be an empress. Uh, and that's something that Gladstone had opposed, and Disraeli supported it and allowed her to be named empress. That was something that he was criticized for very harshly by the liberals. They thought that he had given in to the queen at a time when she should have been resistant. There was a touch, a whiff of scandal around Victoria, at least. Um, there were those who thought that after uh, her husband's death, Prince Albert, uh, she she was constantly in the company of, or rather in her company, constantly one found John Brown, a Scots, uh, what was he in terms of, uh, he was a servant. A sort of servant, yeah. yeah. And uh, the nickname that went around was Mrs. Brown. They started exactly. her Mrs. Exactly. Brown. Uh, the, the thought being that maybe she was having a sexual relationship with John Brown. Right. Uh, how did Disraeli react to those rumors? I don't know how he reacted to that particular rumor. I'm sure he wouldn't have believed it. Um, but he himself had a little bit of a romantic relationship with Victoria, not in any sexual sense, but just in the sense that he fed her compliments and, and flattery and a treated touch of, her... A touch of flirtation. ...treated her in a more feminine way than she was used to. Yeah. What do you think about John Brown? Uh, was I there anything to that? I'm, I'm afraid I don't know. Yeah. It's generally assumed there was not, but there was the press getting mean and... And gossiping. Exactly. Which they've since learned how to do to a, a level of... That's right. They haven't let up in ...masterly sense. achievement, yeah. Um, let's turn to your book itself. As we close, it would be good to... Uh, you, you write very well and uh, very Thank movingly. You. And the theme that penetrates or, uh, uh, or works through the book uh, and that you return to again and again is uh, the Jewishness of Israel, uh, Israeli and his reaction to it and what this sort of signals about the further evolution, I suppose, of Jewish identity in the Western world. That's right. Uh, he lived at a pivotal moment when Jews were emerging into wider European society, and his life showed how much Jews could accomplish uh, in that society, but also some of the ways in which they would always be outsiders in it. Uh, he himself managed to be both the ultimate insider as prime minister and an ultimate outsider. Um, I'll read just a paragraph from, from almost at the end of the book where I try to sum up what Disraeli's Jewishness meant to him. Disraeli's understanding of Jewishness was deeply distorted by his disconnection from the collective Jewish life of his time. Eventually, those distortions even played into the hands of the enemies of the Jews when they took Sidonia, Disraeli's fantasy of Jewish power, as a description of Jewish reality. But Disraeli's imagination of Jewishness did what he needed it to do. It gave him the confidence to compete with the best-born men in England. It gave him the dignity he sustained through the most wounding attacks, and it licensed him to see his passage through the world as a noble adventure. Finally, he could say like a character in his last novel, all I have desired, all I have dreamed has come to pass. Uh, his government finally falls, does it? He was voted out of office uh, in 1880. The conservatives had been in power for six or seven years. They had to call an election, and Disraeli was defeated once again by Gladstone. And he lives for how many more years after that? Just a few months. Uh, after few he months. left office, he yeah. he was sick much of the time that he was in office, and after he left office, he got worse and died in early 1881. What the reputation did he leave behind? Not to the historians, but in English common life. I think that he's still remembered and still uh, to English students as a great uh, mysterious outsider who was a, a great English statesman, but not really an Englishman, and in particular the great opposite of Gladstone, who was in many ways arch-English. One wonders instantly, or necessarily, about 
his career as compared to the, Jew, the two Jewish prime ministers of France. Léon Blum in the 1930s, and then in the years shortly after World War II, Pierre Mendes France, uh, both of whom were distinctively Jewish also, and so viewed by the citizens who surrounded them. Well, he was very different, um, obviously, in terms of the time he lived and the challenges he faced, but mainly because he was living at a time when political anti-Semitism was not yet an issue. Uh, it was really only in the last years of his life and after his death that an organized political anti-Semitic movement came to the fore in Germany and in France, uh, so he didn't have to deal with the kind of things that they later successors had to deal with, and of course he didn't have to deal with the world crisis that Blum had to deal with in the 30s. Blum's uh, achievement of the premiership of France stimulated the further growth of fascist-like movements within France, particularly the rise of the Croix de Feu, an organization that was, meaning the Burning Cross, which was there, really, uh, in protest at the uh, Judaization of French politics. Blum sort of represented uh, the the culmination of what had started in the Dreyfus Affair, which was the split yeah. in French society between the Catholic nationalist right and the international communist or socialist left. We come to the end of the available time, uh, and I'm happy uh, to recommend to all of our listeners this fine new book by Adam Kirsch, Benjamin Disraeli, published by Shock and Books. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.